0: as we open God's word. Uh, please turn with me to Psalm chapter 90. Psalm 90. Not yet. Sorry. Um, we are in the middle of a series, The Summer of Psalms, um, and uh, we've been working on this um, about since mid-May. Uh, I've really enjoyed uh, really digging deeper into the Psalms. they really... Um, open my own heart and um, given words to my own emotions, which is their uh, central purpose. Bono said that he loves the Psalms because of their brutal honesty. And we certainly have seen that, have we not? Well, today is no different. Psalm 90 is a very honest Psalm, honest about the way things are in this world and in this life. My goal, one of my goals in planting this church almost four years ago now, um, many of you may have heard me say this, was that I wanted to plant a church um, that would be a a place, a safe place for people to ask uh, the real questions, for real people to ask real questions that they're really wondering about in the real world, to get deeper into those real questions of life. I guess I've always had a, a natural curiosity about the deeper questions of the heart. I grew up uh, part of the MTV generation. There's a, about four of you in here that are in that generation. You know, back in the videos days, right? You know, when they actually used to run music videos and that was uh, unbelievable. The, the days of stonewashed denim and, uh, and parachute pants and, and mullets, um, preferably with rat tail, that would, that would make it even better, um, I, and I worked on one, believe me, during those days, um, <clears throat> but I remember uh, when things changed for MTV, I'm going to switch this because that is broken, um, and I need to see. I remember uh, when things changed for MTV, and they went to more of a reality TV format, uh, that launched, and they were, they were cutting edge. That, that launched in 1991 with uh, a, a program called The Real World. Now, that was right in my wheelhouse, y'all, because the premise of The Real World was you get a bunch of pe- kids, sort of, in their early 20s, right, who thought they knew what life was all about, and with hormones raging and stick them into one uh, house, and see what happens, just see what happens. Um, While I was kind of jealous that I was never picked for that show, um, I do remember thinking, is this the real world? Is this what it's all about? It seemed like a pretty shallow, flat world to me, not the real world at all, not the one I was experiencing. Not with the questions I was having. It wasn't addressing the real questions I had. Like, why do I get in my own way so much of the time? What happens when I die? Why is there suffering? What can I really, really hope in in this life? Those seemed much more important to me than what to do with my hormones. But how could I find the answers Certainly not on reality TV, in my mind, uh, then and, and to a degree now, too, reality TV was really just a, an escape from reality. Um, so I searched and searched, and that search ended me up in seminary, uh, which ended me up planting churches, which ended me up preaching on texts like Psalm 90 that does give answers that we're asking to questions we're really asking that paints a picture of the real world, a real world of depth and struggle and complexity and brutal honesty, but also with hope, also with Um, We won't mind all of those questions today. I actually tried in in writing this sermon. I wrote three sermons this week uh, on this text because I couldn't figure out how to include them all. Don't worry, I won't torture you with all three. Um, So I wanted to focus in on one question that really emerged preeminent to the writer's prayer here, chiefly, what can we really hope in in this real world? So let's turn our hearts now to see if... We can find an answer from Psalm chapter 90, Jennifer.
1: Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return o children of man for a thousand years in your sight for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night you sweep them away as with a flood like they are a dream like grass that is renewed in the morning in the morning it flourishes and is renewed and in the evening it fades and withers for we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, we are dismayed. We have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all your days pass away under your wrath, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength, eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble, make us glad for as many days you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The word of the Lord.
0: Thanks, God. Now well, that's depressing. Right. Um, I appreciate his honesty, but Debbie Downer, man, for real. The writer of this psalm is Moses. Uh, We're not exactly sure when he wrote this psalm. I'm mostly certain that he wrote it during the wilderness years as he led the people out into the wilderness for 40 years at the same time that he would have written the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Um, But we're not sure when, during those 40 years, that he wrote this psalm. But as I uh, read it and reread it, I kept imagining that he was near the end of that time, near the end of his life, maybe on top of Mount Nebo. There, looking over the Jordan River and the Dead Sea out in front of him, looking over into the promised land that God had promised to bring them to. Again, I don't know, but that's what I kept coming back to as making the most sense during that time. Here is Moses, one of history's greatest leaders, now a wise old man, reflecting on it all, reflecting on the real world, reflecting on his real life with brutal honesty. We know it was a hard life, and we see that in his honest lament here, that life is short like a dream or like grass that withers, and then you die. That's what's true. That sin is the cause of that death. That sinners deserve the wrath of God, and in the meantime, life is full of toil and trouble. There are no youthful games of charades here, no blinders on this wise old man, no prideful denials of responsibility for the way that he had failed, right? There's no denying the truth, and yet there is something deeply different than where I would go in light of that truth, and where I hear most of us going in light of that truth. Where we go often is to cynicism or self-pity or despair, Moses was told by God, now put yourself in his sandals for a minute, Moses was told by God that he would not enter the promised land, despite all of his work, despite 40 years in the desert, it's been hot, it's been grimy, it's been awful. Time to cash in, I want a little milk and honey, thank you very much, right? Wouldn't that be? And you're telling me I don't get to go? That's what I would say. But that's not what Moses says. Moses, and in Psalm 90, shows a deep hope that bleeds through the reality of a hard, toilsome life. I think the key to understanding this hope is in understanding his prayer in verse 12. Probably the most famous passage in the in the Psalm. What does he mean when he prays, teach us to number our days? What does that mean? Uh, You may have heard that before. Uh, That's often quoted at funerals or by motivational speakers. Um, The widely held interpretation is that Moses is saying that because life is short, because of the truth, that there is death, there's really only one way to respond, only one way to live, and that is to make the most of your time, right? You've heard that sort of interpretation, right? Filling up, if you will, the dash between the dates with lots of good stuff, with great things. You know, the dash between the dates, that's borrowing an Alistair Begg's um, uh, illustration uh, the, you've got two dates on the tombstone you've got a birth date and an end date the question is what are you going to do with the dash that's how this has been defined count your days make them count right um, but in that way I just want to bring this to mind and we'll circle back here in that way that life, our life, is really defined by that end date. It's defined by death. So fill it up. The clock is ticking. Number your days. Well, apparently someone played that game. Have you ever played that game? If the, today was your last day, what, do you, what would you do? Game like, oh, that's to- totally super motivational. Like, oh, let's not let's not fritter it away. Um, someone played that game, apparently with the late Anthony Bourdain. So sad right last week hearing of his death Um, and all the quotes in light of his death this one caught my eye apparently in response to this sort of thinking that you should live your day like it's your last day he said this i often use the hypothetical out of control ice cream truck what would happen if you were walking across the street and were suddenly hit by a careening mr softy truck As you lie there in your last few moments of consciousness, what kind of final thoughts flash through your mind? I should have have had a last cigarette, might be one, or I should have dropped acid with everyone else back in 1974. That may be it. Maybe something along the lines of, I should have had more fun in my life. I I should have relaxed a little more, enjoyed myself a little more. Well, that was never my problem. When they're yanking a fender out of my chest cavity, I will decidedly not be regretting missed opportunities for a good time. My regrets will be more along the lines of a sad list of people I've hurt, people I've let down, assets I've wasted, and advantages I've squandered. In other words, the hope that we have in the real world of death and toil and crazy ice cream truck drivers is to fill up those dashes so there will not be regrets. But clearly Bourdain, at least in his own mind, failed in that quest and sadly took his life in despair. It's a hard thing to put our hope in, isn't it? To fill up your dash What's your barometer for filling it up? What's it going to take to make it good? Um, I think it's one that actually most of us practically think about all the time, but it almost always, if you you follow that course, if you follow that thinking, it almost always leads to cynicism, self-pity, or despair because for sinners it's impossible not to have some regret in that dash. And even if we're successful at stuffing it full of cool stuff, death comes and ultimately takes it away. Why all this work? Why all this toil? What are we doing? We're just going to die. That was a huge question for me early on in my faith journey. What are we doing? What am I doing this for? Why do I care? Is it to make some legacy that... I'll leave so that people will talk good about me when I'm dead, and I won't have any clue. (laughs) Where's the win there? Death defined me, and it still defines us. And if we go there, even that demands cynicism, self-pity, and despair. But Moses has something more, doesn't he? A better hope than to live like it's your last day game. All through um, the hard real world that he is painting here, that he is describing here, is woven this theme, if you look carefully, um, that the real world is actually the kingdom of God. And in that real world of the kingdom of God, life is not defined by death, but life is actually everlasting. And Moses sees the kingdom of God as the real world. He fundamentally operates out of the reality of the kingdom of God, which bleeds in and through the world we see and know. He starts at the beginning here, reminding us that God is the God Uh, an everlasting God, verses 1 and 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. He is going back to what he wrote about creation in Genesis of an eternal God who made the world eternal. He's reminding us and himself that God is not defined by time or by death like we are. Verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday. Back then, before sin had entered the world, we were made in God's image. And therefore we were made eternal. We were made everlasting. For, uh, we were made for an everlasting home. Right? For a, an eternal dwelling place with God. Mankind was made to dwell with God forever in communion. But sin did come, and so did death, cutting our lives short and bringing toil and trouble. Moses laments this all through, based on the fact that this is not the way it's supposed to be. He laments that sin and death are not the way God made it from the beginning. Uh, There was another death this week. Um, For those of you who are St. Louis Cardinals fans... I'm not going to ask you <laughs> you all should be. Um, Cardinal Nation, as we are called, uh, lost one of its great men last week. Um, Red East, great Hall of Famer second baseman, died last week at the age of 95. And we say, oh, man, that's sad, but what a great life. Great job with your dash, Red. But Moses doesn't share that sentiment. He laments that we only have 70 or 80 years. This is not a good thing. Living to 80 is not a great thing. It is not something to achieve. When my mom died suddenly at 68... At the funeral, I had the opportunity to say a few words about her, and I stood up and I talked about how death was an obscenity. Death was an intruder on the good, the good work of God in our lives, that death was a great interrupter of God's plan. That even if my mother had lived to be 100 years old, her death would have been horrendous. Because death is an obscenity in the real world of the kingdom of God. It is an unnatural intruder. We are not made for death. We are not made for life as a dash, brothers and sisters. We are made for life as an arrow. That stretches on into eternity that's why in my soul I still feel like I'm 28 anyone over the age of 28 with me what's up with that that's why I long for home what's up with that that's why I long for permanence and a permanent home. What's up with that? Science can't answer those questions, brothers and sisters, for all the great answers that science gives. They can't answer the deepest longings of my heart, which I long for something more. And I always feel like a stranger in this place. Amen? Much has been written about that. One of my favorite quotes about That hope that we have, that longing that we have, comes from a man named F.B. Meyer. Never have figured out what the F and the B stand for, but back in my early faith walk, I ran across a devotional, a daily devotional called Streams in the Desert. Um, I commend it to you. F.B. Meyer was a a London pastor in the 19th century who has lots of wonderful things to say um, and was very influential on me really early in my faith walk. Um, but he has a unique perspective on the world fundamentally as the kingdom of God. And he writes this. It's included in your gutter there alongside your sermon if you want to follow along. I think it's great. The passing of years awakens in our heart the cry for permanence. Our nature is keyed not to the temporal but to the Eternal. And as we see the leaves falling before the autumn winds are littering the forest glade down which we walk in the short winter days, as the changes of the natural world compel us to remember the still greater ones which are, which are ever carrying us out of this familiar world of our past and into one as strange and undiscovered as the new world to which Columbus sailed, there rises up within us a passionate desire for a home which death Cannot invade, right? Friendships with, which time cannot impair, chaplets of never-withering flowers, and a condition of existence which is impervious to change. There is a deep longing for everlasting, right? There is a deep longing for an everlasting home because we were made that way. And Moses is lamenting that. Only 80 years? What a ripoff! Then in verse 13, he cries to God for him to return. How long? Have pity on us. Bring this madness of life defined by death to an end as you promised back in the garden. He reminds us and himself of the promised truth of his steadfast love that we camped off out on last week. If you were here, can anyone give me a chesed? Come on. Chesed. The steadfast love of God. Oh, it towers over the kingdom of God. It's unmovable and unshakable. Chesed. And that's the center of God's heart. All right, so we're going to play a word association game. I'll know a word association game? I'm going to call on a few of you. I just want you to, I'm going to say a word, and then I want you to say exactly what comes to your mind, right, when I say that word. Clark, you ready? Work. Tiresome. Okay, work, tiresome. Um, Jennifer, home. Peace. Peace, home, peace. Good. Barrett, desire. Crawfish etouffee. Crawfish Fa. Hey, amen, bro. <laughs> Yes. where are you going after this? Now, let's, let's go. <laughs> now we're all distracted. Um, Carl Jung invented that test to reveal the inner world of his patients. Apparently, Barrett's inner world is filled with crawfish du fait. If we gave that test to God And we said to God, sin, you know what he would say? Redemption. That's in the center of his inner world. That's in the center of God's heart. Sin, no redemption. Because of his chesed, his steadfast love for his creation, for you and to me. And he proves that is in the center of his heart by sending Jesus to fix that sin and death problem and to redeem the world on Easter. He did. He took our sin and death on himself on the cross and he won the day on Easter. Uh, Jesus obliterated that last day on our tombstone, y'all. He obliterated that last date on our tombstone and he changed it back from a dash into an arrow. And his resurrection, his physical resurrection is proof of that truth. Paul says that if there was no resurrection, y'all need to go home. what are you doing here? Go play golf. Go get a bagel. If there's no resurrection, then what we do here is silly. But there is a resurrection. Jesus really did rise from the grave, and that is proof that the kingdom of God is real and that we actually live in that as the real world. The best thing of our Israel trip. If y'all went up to our sunrise service on Easter, you heard me talking about this, but the best thing of my trip to Israel last fall was that the trip that we took to the garden tomb where, where Jesus, we think, it seems logical that he rose from the day, the grave. We had this really nice elderly British woman who was leading us around and, and answering questions and there's this big debate of whether or not Jesus' tomb was there in the garden tomb or whether it was where uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is with all of that stuff going on there and there's, there's decent reasons for people to believe that it's one of the two um, and as she was ending up our tour we were all sitting there in front of her and this, she's just so lovely and you know when you have a British accent pretty much convinces everyone. That's why Peter is going to start preaching after this. Um, no, <clears throat> he's blushing. Um, I, uh, we sat there and she said, listen, just read the account. If, you, if, you're, if you're wondering whether or not it happened here or there, just, just read the account and, and ask yourself, which makes sense. But, she says, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter because we worship a living Christ. It doesn't matter from where he rose. It just matters that he's alive and he is, brothers and sisters. He is God. He is our dwelling place. He is everlasting to everlasting. And we who believe and follow are in him. Brothers and sisters, when we define our lives by death, we deny the resurrection. We doubt Christ's victory and deny the truth of the eternal world, the eternal real world of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God that Moses operated out of and that brings us our only lasting hope. Not only hope for our fear of death, but within that kingdom of God, vision for our eternal purpose. If it's true, think about this, if it's true that God made the world eternal and that he in Christ redeemed it to everlasting, then, get this, God made the work of our hands to last into eternity as well. We join in the everlasting song with our spreadsheets and our teaching and our diaper changing. We are a force in Christ of the everlasting good that he is bringing to the world regardless, regardless of death and toil and trouble because those things define us no longer we are to lay up treasures in heaven, we are to seek first the kingdom of God in our relationships and in our work and in our lives we are to fill up that arrow yes yes With the stuff that will last, with the stuff, as the song says, of love. As one commentator said about Moses' twofold prayer at the end here, to establish the work of our hands, yes, establish the work of our hands, he says that that must be felt as a reversal of the imagery of the dead withering grass. that we are called to a participation in the eternal mission of God to redeem the world. So, finally, what does Moses mean when he prays that we should number our days? I don't think that he's praying that we should live like it's our last day. I think he is praying that we should live in the truth that our days last. Not that we should live like it's our last day, but we should live in the truth that our days last. That is our greatest hope. And that ought to push us past our cynicism, self-pity, and despairs. As Moses looks across the landscape of the Primus Land, he knows he won't see it with his own eyes, but he does know he will see it for eternity with resurrected eyes. And that's the difference. Right? That's the difference. <clears throat> Grace and peace, brothers and sisters, live and work and love in the real world of the kingdom of God. I, uh, I close with an illustration that is the most important illustration in my life. Um, I'll be back next week and with a few more things to say. Um, but I wanted to um, reiterate this illustration. Maybe you've heard it before. Again, uh, I, I got one last try, one last time just to tell it. It has been so formative in my life, so formative in helping change my eyes from, from viewing the world as a flat world to viewing it as the all-nuanced, uh, beautiful, glorious kingdom of God that I just needed to tell you again. It's from F.B. Meyer who I quoted a minute ago. F.B. Meyer was a a very successful pastor in London. He had one of those glorious buildings and he started noticing his his congregants drifting away, little by little trickling away and he couldn't understand it. So he sent a couple of his elders to figure out what was going on and, and over weeks they kept trickling away and and so he was like, man, I thought I was, I thought I was preaching pretty good. No, he didn't say that. That's what I would have said. Man, what did I say? Did I offend somebody? Right? What would you say if they were drifting away? What did I do wrong? Oh, my goodness. What do I need to do to get them back? Right? Wouldn't that, it, like, how am I going to, to rectify the problem here? His elders returned and said, this may be hard to hear, um, But they are leaving you to go hear a preacher across town. I've wrestled so many days wondering, what would I do? What would I do? I'll tell you what F.B. Meyer did. The following Sunday he met his congregation out on the front porch and he led the rest of them to go hear that preacher. Why would he do that? Because he said, if that's where the kingdom of God is happening, if that's where the Holy Spirit is at work, far be it from me to stand in the way of God Almighty and what he has for those people. F.B. Myers' life was defined by the kingdom of God. May it be for all of us, brothers and sisters. May it be for all of us. Let's pray. Our Father, we rejoice in the victory you've won in Christ. We rejoice in that victory. We do not deny it. We do not um, push it away. Yes, we doubt. Yes, um, we struggle. Yes, this world is full of death and sin and toil and trouble. But help us believe. We believe. Help our unbelief. Help us to live our lives in light of the truth that you walked out of the grave and that you are a living God from everlasting to everlasting and you have made us in your image so that we might dwell everlastingly with you. Give us that hope. Fill our days with it. Fill our work with the knowledge that as we work in toil and trouble, you are redeeming us and you are even using us as we love to redeem the world. Praise be to you. And all God's people said, Amen.